I'm trying to be a bit more eco-friendly at the moment, and so I'm only buying second-hand clothes. But it kind of went the other way, in which, like, I started buying stuff that I'm definitely not going to wear, but was just, like, really cool on the person that I saw it on. And it makes me buy clothes that are way too cool for me. Like, I'm just, I'm never going to wear. Including the hat, I don't know whether you can see it behind me. Probably not the, the one for podcasting, but I have a really cool hat, but it's way cooler than I am. And I just can't pull it off. Is it a trilby? Uh, let, me, let me go and get it. <laughs> I've got to see I this. I can't wait. This is great radio, <laughs> by the way. Oh. Yeah. Oh, I knew it would be a trilby. I now, I now can't wear my headphones. Oh, my gosh. But, uh, I, think it's, I think it's a fedora. Fedora hat. It is. Yeah. Yeah. But I feel like there's a certain person now who wears a fedora that I don't want to be associated with. No, that's a nice but, hat. That's a really nice hat. Man, you're, it's like you're so close. It's almost there. <laughs> should we uh should we jump into some watchtower weekly watchtower weekly is named for our watchtower service where it's built into one password helps keep you safe online tells you about breaches and password reuse and, and things of that exposed passwords that have shown up on the internet so we named watchtower weekly for that because watchtower weekly is a breakdown of all the bad things that are happening on the internet but not weekly what did i say well we called it weekly i mean i named it weekly before I realized that putting out a podcast episode every week is actually like a real challenge. So wel- welcome to Bewatch Tower bi-weekly. <laughs> every two weekly. There we go. So th- this first one is a cyber attack that prompts the shutdown of a major fuel pipeline in the US. So this is reported by The Verge. One of the largest pipelines in the US was taken offline by its operator following a cyber attack. First reported by the New York Times, the Colonial Pipeline, which carries 45% of the fuel supplies for the eastern US... My goodness. Said it took certain systems offline to contain the threat, which has temporarily halted all pipeline operations and affected some of our IT systems. The pipeline is, get this, 5,500 miles long. That is a lot. Imagine if there's a leak and they're like, well, go find the leak. Let's go and check it. Yeah, and, and carries jet fuel and refined fuel, according to the Times, transporting some 2.5 million barrels a day. It's not yet clear whether the attack targeted Colonial's industrial control systems or if the attack was carried out by foreign government hackers. The Washington Post reported that the incident was a ransomware attack. And, you know, looking at some some stuff that's just come out, actually, today by Graham Cluley, the disruption has actually been huge news, and it's caused President Joe Biden himself saying publicly that he's taking an active interest in this and being briefed on a regular basis about the situation. And the FBI confirmed that it was Darkside, the Darkside ransomware gang. That's a four out of ten on the naming scale. Yep. And they were responsible for the attack on the Colonial's pipeline network. They released a statement in broken English on a uh, website where it normally leaks data stolen from compromised organizations saying we are apolitical we do not participate in geopolitics do not need to tie us with a defined government and look for our other motives i think they're basically saying that they're doing it for money and please the fbi please don't come after us for nation state attacks and disrupting a pipeline even though they disrupted a pipeline Hmm. they continue to say our goal is to make money and not creating problems for society does that work (laughs) like can you commit a crime and just say like oh don't charge me for this (laughs) because i mean i was just trying to make money yeah it was a different thing like i wasn't trying to upset the societal scale or anything i just 
just got to make them bills. Right. They said, from today, we introduce moderation and check each company that our partners want to encrypt to avoid social consequences in the future. So I take this uh, as to say that they are in brown trouser mode that the FBI are coming after them. <laughs> I mean, I, I would be. It doesn't take much to like freak me out in that regard. But like, yeah, that would definitely do it. So... Previously, Darkseid has claimed on its professional-looking website, uh, there's a comment by Graham Cluley, that it will not target medical facilities, funeral services, educational establishments, non-profit organizations, and governments. So they're trying to be the good guy criminals, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's admirable. Yeah. They just want to make money. Until you need fuel. Right. And then it kind of becomes a problem. The Times reported that it would be unlikely that the shutdown would cause immediate disruption to consumers, since most of the fuel goes actually into storage tanks. And the U.S. has seen an, a reduction in an energy usage uh, due to the pandemic. So this next one is millions of Dell PCs will grant malware rogue users admin level access if asked nicely. Dude, you're getting a malware. That's great. <laughs> Come on. That's really good. I hope that stays in. Uh, so Dell desktops, laptops and tablets built since 2009 and running Windows can be exploited to grant rogue users and malware system administrator level access to the computers. We're told that this amounts to hundreds of millions of machines that can potentially be compromised. The horrible thing about this is I bet the level of upgrades that people do on Dell computers is lower than perhaps others. Yep. This is made possible by five security vulnerabilities. So, you know, all used together, like the Infinity Stones. Oh, dear. <laughs> I'm getting into Marvel now. If you listen to previous episodes of the podcast, you can kind of chart my watching of, of Marvel movies as the references become more and more. <laughs> it's a security vulnerability in a driver by Dell which bundles with its PCs. They can be abused to crash systems, steal information, and escalate privileges to take total control. These programming blunders can only be exploited by applications already running on a machine or already logged in user. A senior security researcher at Sentinel-1 said, while we haven't seen any indicators that these vulnerabilities have been exploited in the wild up until now, with hundreds of millions of enterprises and users currently vulnerable, it is inevitable that attackers will seek out those that do not take the appropriate action. So the appropriate action here is, you know, update, yeah. update, update. Dell has emitted a patch driver and accompanying FAQ on the issue after bug hunters reported the flaws in December. The fix will be pushed out from May 10th. So it's out now if you have a Dell. I was going to say there's a lot of companies that solely have Dell, you know, and every employee is going to need to take this update and, and run with it. And it's going to be quite big. Yeah, I feel like this is one of those areas where software manufacturers could do better, where security vulnerabilities get pushed a little bit harder on people or security vulnerability fixes rather get pushed a little bit harder outside of a normal software update cycle where it's like, listen, like this is a real, real problem. You, you need to do apply this patch. You need to do this. It all just falls into that same bucket. And yeah, people don't always keep their devices up to date in the way that they should. Update your stuff, people. So this next one, bug in Peloton's API may have exposed a whole lot of user data. Uh, this one's another one from The Verge. An old version of Peloton's API, uh, the software allows the company's bikes, you know, they're very expensive bikes that don't go anywhere, and recalled treadmills 
communicate with the servers may have exposed private customer data, according to a report from TechCrunch. This would be bad. It would show how much people have spent on a bike that don't use it. <laughs> the bug was first spotted by Jan Masters, a security researcher at Pentest Partners, friend of the show, and reported to Peloton on January 20th. The company is only just now confirming that the bug has been fixed. Using Peloton's API, Masters was able to scrape all sorts of customer information that would typically be private, depending on the individual user's settings. This includes customer profiles, which can potentially feature their age, location, birthday, and workout history. Oof. All Jan Masters had to do was make an unauthenticated request to Peloton's API, and customer data was his. After reporting the bug to Peloton, Masters set a 90-day deadline to address the issue. Uh, the deadline came and went without Peloton saying whether the API had been fixed. Oh, dear. Oh. That, that's the worst bit about this. Ouch. That doesn't look good. Uh, which prompted Masters to turn to TechCrunch. Yep. Mm. Uh, as he well should. Mm -hmm. uh, Peloton finally responded and shared the following statement with its publication. It's a priority for Peloton to keep our platform secure. <laughs> you can't make it up. And we're always looking to improve our approach and process for working with the external security community through our coordinated vulnerability disclosure group. A security researcher informed us that he was able to access our API and see information that's available on a Peloton profile. We took action and addressed the issues based on his initial submissions, but we were slow to update the researcher about our remediation efforts. Going forward, we will do better to collaborate with the security research community and respond more promptly when vulnerabilities are reported. We want to thank Ken Munro friend of the show, of the show for submitting his reports through our cvd program and being open to working with us to resolve these issues not a bad statement in the end no definitely the result of somebody inside going like what the hell is this how did this get through yeah yeah that's a break but the, the fact that they admitted that they were slow to take on the researchers submissions yes i always think that people when they put their communications out about a breach if they're just honest about it that's all you can be, really, isn't it? And then you can at least try and claw back some trust. Yeah. Yeah. The ones that try to ignore the security researchers, I think, are the worst. No, like breach notifications. It doesn't seem like this was too bad. Although I really don't like the idea of a connected exercise device. I do a bit of yoga, but it's it's not pretty. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's quite a lot of um, very customer sensitive information in a fitness app. You know, people put their body mass index and, you know, frequency of workout or weight gains, losses, like a lot of that information people put in. So it's quite sensitive, really. It is. Yeah. Especially what they can infer from that as well. Yeah. As soon as I can, I will be going in person to yoga, not speaking to any of those people and then coming back again. And that's how I like my private information. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So the last one I thought was an interesting one. I included this. It's the daily iOS 14.5 opt-in rate. So until now, apps have been able to rely on Apple's identifier for advertising to track users for targeting and advertising purposes. With the launch of 14.5 this week, mobile apps have to now ask users who have upgraded to 14.5 for permission for tracking data, right? With opt-in rates, they, they were expected to be low, right? This impacts $189 billion worth of mobile advertising industry, they reckon. So Flurry Analytics, which is owned by uh, Verizon uh, and is used by over 1 million mobile applications, 
providing aggregated insights across over 2 billion devices. Basically, their, their website allows you to see the rate of which people are opting into these analytics, right? The opt-in rate in the US, surprisingly, a lot lower than anywhere else. Yeah. The opt-in rate for the US is 6%. Wow. Why is that surprising? I mean, it's not surprising, but still. How does that compare with other countries? Did you did you have other figures? Yeah, so the, the, the worldwide rate is 15%, so quite a bit higher. But still, when you think about before Apple rolled this out, it was going to be 100%, right? Like, you didn't have a choice about this. Yep. And so the personalized mobile advertising, you know, trackers are us. They've lost 95% of their data set now going forward, which is kind of wild. That is big, isn't it? How does this affect us at 1Password, Matt? I, it does not. We do not include any of those nasty things in our, in our apps. Yay! <laughs> so there's one of two things that, I, that are going to happen out of this. One is that Apple is going to force a privacy-based approach to advertising on the entire world. And like the, the industry is just going to accept the fact this is, this is a fact of life and move on to something that is privacy-preserving and sort of makes everything better for everyone. Or what the cynic in me believes is going to happen is they're going to find a way around this. I would like to hope that it would be the first one, though. They're going to find some way around this. It's going to be server level. It's going to make requests. It's going to do something. And it, it's going to rely on Apple shutting one more thing down, right? Like, yeah. it's going to become a fingerprint of how you do things within the app that they start selling. I think Apple are doing a really good job at this. Oh, absolutely. Like, when they first came out a couple of years ago and were like, look, we're going to be privacy-focused and, and, like, you know, I think they said the word privacy in a keynote about 100 times. It was a little bit empty. They just, they didn't do the things that obstructed your privacy. There weren't activities at that point that I would call privacy-preserving. Whereas these features now are huge and the impact that this is going to have well look they've lost 95 percent of their tracking data to track people across apps about behavior it's kind of beautiful yeah it's great to see yeah so this week i got to talk to surya matu it was a great conversation we spent a good bit of time before we even got into the interview just uh nerding out about home automation stuff for a while so it was a really great chat and uh i was excited to get to talk to him and i think that we'll probably just drop that in here Joining me on the show today is Surya Matu, an engineer by training. Surya builds tools and gathers data to tell stories about how algorithmic systems perpetuate systemic biases and inequalities in society. Currently, he works as an investigative data journalist at The Markup, as well as creating phenomenal tools like the real-time website privacy inspector, Blacklight. Welcome to the show, Surya. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me, Michael. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you. So I want to get right into this because I think this is so cool. As an engineer... You've got a very specific field of interest, which looks at the ways that algorithmic systems perpetuate systemic biases and inequalities in society. Could you break that down for us a little bit? Sure. So coming from an engineering background and then actually moving through kind of like a bit of an art practice and then into journalism, kind of exposure in all of those worlds taught me how to look at like technology from a bunch of different perspectives. And what I noticed is that there was basically like a big gap between how technologists like myself, look at the tech and how people from different sort of backgrounds, like artists or journalists or educators, look at the tech. And the fundamental difference was that the technologists are really looking at how the thing is built and they're not paying that much attention to the environment in which it's used. So when I first worked, you know, I, when I worked as an engineer, I actually worked in a healthcare medical tech company. 
And in that like controlled setting, it was a really well-known thing that like when you introduce new technology into an environment, like let's say you introduce the company I worked for made heart sensors for hospitals. They were like, when you introduce a new piece of tech into a new environment, you'll solve the problems you want to solve, but you'll also create new ones. So it's really important to monitor the environment in which the technology is being used to see what kind of unintended consequences that technology can have. And I think as things have gotten smarter and technologies kind of gotten pervasive into all aspects of our life, that fact got left behind. And what ends up happening is that a lot of this technology, it does solve the problems it's trying to solve, but that problem is very specific. And what it ends up doing is it perpetuates systemic biases that already exist in systems. So like social inequality is not caused by technology, but it can definitely be exacerbated technology. The simplest example of this actually is, I think, with fitness trackers and how when fitness trackers were originally made as a product, they were made for users, people who kind of enjoy this quantified self-movement to monitor their own data to take better care of themselves. Now, when you use those same sensors and put them into the context of health insurance, it's a completely different conversation. And when you start thinking about who will have to use the fitness tracking data to get a discount on the insurance premium and hence be monitored and surveilled by a health sensor, that's how that systemic bias kind of perpetuates itself. Wow. I've never, th- I've literally never talked about a blind spot. Like I've never thought about that before. That's fascinating. Awesome. That- <laughs> Wow. Okay. Sorry. I got to tell you, like, I, w- I, d- I don't know where to go from here because I'm looking at the rest of the questions. Like, they're fine. But like, my God, I want to double click on that and like dive in. We can do that. All right. So that's a huge topic with like that, that with like a lot of depth to it. How is the work that you're doing making this better or exposing it, uh, I guess, more making people more aware? My motivation comes from raising the common sense around these things. I think when I started doing this work, like the aesthetic that, that kind of played in my mind was like, I was like a hacker, you know, like I was going into the mainframe and like opening the terminal and <laughs> doing, getting into the matrix and all of this stuff. And now I feel more like a restaurant health inspector, hmm. wow. you know, like, like it feels like that's kind of the change in it. And that's, that's actually the difference for me from like doing this as like art projects or doing this as journalism. Basically, what I'm most motivated by is to abstract away the actual tech to talk about the business choices, the choices made by the people who made the tech that we are using. Because I think that gap of like how the tech works and the choices behind how people make them, people like us who understand technology, we can we understand the human aspect of that. But I think people who don't just assume there's no other way for it to have been because it's so hard and it's so complicated that people think if you work in technology, you work at NASA. And I think that's changing a lot now, but I think that used to be quite the common trope. So kind of challenging the common sense. I know it's like it's a human who has the same blind spots as everyone else. And we should question how these things work. That's kind of my motivation. So it's really an it's almost an ethics problem at this point to like make people more aware of how the choices that they're making on at a company level can have impacts that may even be unforeseen. Yeah, completely. And and the thing for me is like the crux of it, I think, is like is to to raise the common sense that the technology we create will always be imbued with the values of the culture it's created in. Right. So like, I think this is for me, like the source of a lot of the disconnect that people, we get into this defensive posture often where people make something, they're thinking about like one use case in mind, 
it goes into the world it's used by a million people or even a thousand people now those thousand people aren't all the same they all have different life experiences and often the people who aren't who are most different to the people in the room making the tech are the ones it works the worst for yeah right and i think what ends up happening is when stories come out about how the tech is harming people the people who make the tech get super defensive and said, we didn't intend for this to happen. We are good guys. You know, this was not our intention. And for me, the thing is to get to a point to be like, systemic bias is not a bug, it's a feature. And we actually have to keep it in mind when you're building the tech and include voices from different spaces to make sure you're not building it like that. Yeah. Wow. So this is this also has a foot in diversity and equality. Yeah, it's like a good holistic garden of goodness. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, huh. I think you kind of need the like, I think you need all of those things to really because especially now with like the way the role technology plays in our life is no longer just like one thing. It's trying to become a layer on everything. So if it's trying to become a layer on everything, then all of society's shit has to then be accounted for, I think, within it as well. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so over at the markup, you like to say big tech is watching you. We're watching big tech. What kinds of things are you all working on over there to help keep them in check? We have reporters and like and data journalists working on stories regarding companies like Google and uh, Amazon and the ways in which we like we had a story come out last year from Leon Yin and Adrian Jeffries, two of our reporters about the ways in which Google's search engine and search engine results basically prioritize Google content over others content on the results homepage. There was another story we did um, recently about how Google blocks advertising from targeting Black Lives Matter videos. And, you know, there's a bunch of stuff like this that we find. So we basically also have reporters working on different types of algorithms like tenant screening software. So software that's used by landlords to fit to determine who's a risky tenant. And we found ways in which that software is biased. And it's often just because they, they, they when they search the person's name, they do a bad fuzzy search on the back end and they get the wrong person. Wow. The thing about the markup that I'd say that's more unique is our founder, Julia Angwin, kind of always appreciated the value of engineers in the newsroom. Each big investigation has one traditional reporter and one data journalist working to, to collect the data, analyze the data, parse the data. So everything we do is based in the foundation of actual data that we've collected. Yeah, that lends a lot of credence to your reports and, and sort of gives you sort of a built-in expert with every article that's written. That's really cool. So what do you find are some of the biggest threats or pressing issues where big tech is concerned today? Fundamentally, I think the biggest challenge is just the amount of power they have over choices that we all make in our daily life and how little transparency there is around those choices like you know we're sitting here on a zoom call that's just how we do meetings now and now suddenly there's a company that can really affect how humans are having meetings so for me the biggest threat really is especially post-pandemic so much of our life has gone online now even more so than it was before and who gets to decide what those choices are that are being made in the technology we use that's for me the biggest the biggest threat yeah Okay, so I want to transition over to Blacklight. This is a really cool real-time privacy inspector for websites. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more detail about it, how it works? I, I know I went and played with it immediately awesome. and, and you know, was typing in websites that I assumed were going to be horrible, and definitely some of them were. <laughs> 
<laughs> sure. So, um, Blacklight is, uh, as you said, a real-time website privacy inspector. Basically, the the way it works is um, we have a browser in the cloud, which when you type in a website into Blacklight, it tells that browser to, to go to that website. And we've basically added some custom software to the website so that it can run a bunch of tests for us and give us like a real-time report of how their website behaves. So... We actually have seven different tests, I think, on the tool. You know, we look for the traditional stuff like third-party cookies and advertising and advertising-related tracking. Those are the kinds of things you'd get from like an ad blocker. Ad blockers would block third-party cookies and ad trackers, but we don't block them. We just look to see the list of companies that are doing it. We then also have a test for canvas fingerprinting, which is basically a technique that advertisers started using to circumvent cookie blocking. So third-party cookies are like basically like the ways in which big advertising companies like DoubleClick, which is owned by Google, can monitor people across the internet. If I block third-party cookies, they can't do that. But if they use Canvas fingerprinting, even if I block the cookies, they can still they can still track me. And Canvas fingerprinting is just like a really um, kind of impressive for what they do. They basically draw a small invisible image on your screen. And the ways in which all our computers, most computers draw those images are slightly different. And this is to do with how like randomness comes into like font aliasing and other kinds of things. And the exact pixels for each computer are slightly different and they can use that hmm. uh, to basically uniquely identify different models of devices. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, you're seeing me just sort of go like, <laughs> yeah, so, so, so we, we do see stuff like that. And we actually try with Blacklight to, when you when canvas fingerprinting happens on the site, I actually pop up the image if you look at the drop down for what the image was. Oh, I see it. That's so cool. Yeah, that was hard. <laughs> that was really Whoa. hard. Too, but, but that's the actual image that was drawn. So then we have, so, you know, so we have canvas fingerprinting. Then in addition to that kind of surveillance economy tracking, we also look for other kinds of stuff like what kind of, who's monitoring keystrokes and mouse clicks on a site. So like Blacklight on any form on a given site, it types stuff in and then it looks to see if any scripts are monitoring that. And then we look for Facebook Pixel and Google Analytics remarketing audiences technology. And this is because we found in our survey that, you know, both of these uh, technologies were on like more than half of the 100,000 most popular websites. So we felt like it was important to like highlight that the ways which are being tracked by Facebook aren't only happening on Facebook and Instagram. They actually happen everywhere. Right. So the motivation here really was to give people a list of clear, precise, evidence-driven test results that they could then take to the website developer and say, hey, why do you do this stuff? Yeah. The site tells me that this stuff is happening. It's not very Right? We're not saying that it's like tracking. It's like it's very specific. It's advertising tracking. What do we mean by that? You can look in our methodology and look at it. You can actually download all the data from this interface, including all the network requests that were made to generate these tests. So you can replay exactly why we made these claims. And the whole motivation was to be able to ask that human question. Hey, why are you doing this stuff? Yeah. Wow. Okay. So I want to, I want to hit a couple of results uh, for a yeah. sec. Cause I, as, as you were talking, I was typing in different sites and I was surprised by some of them. So one of the first ones I did was Amazon. I thought for sure Amazon would just like blow it out. No ad trackers, no third-party cookies, 
it did have the the fingerprinting yep which is that must be their like main source because everything else came up negative well amazon's an interesting one right so like amazon doesn't make money off advertising right True. they actually sell stuff and like and if you think about where their tracking technology would be it's more likely that it would be on the other side so amazon wouldn't have a third party cookie they would have a first party cookie i see you're right okay so same problem with facebook and like any social media platform like blacklight wouldn't work for those kinds of sites because there you're going into it's like you're going into the shopping mall yeah so it's kind of more expected in a way yeah all right so i did another site that i sometimes fall into really hard and just find it three hours later i've just been scrolling through images which is imager okay i-m-g-u-r and I'm never going to Imager again, okay? There's uh, <laughs> 16 ad trackers, 42 third-party cookies. Uh, it tells Facebook when I go there, like, like, all right, maybe that's pretty gross. <laughs> See, and that makes sense, right? Because they probably make money off that type of tracking. Yes. I didn't really Ooh. recognize this one when we were building it because we were trying to really have specific tests. So that is kind of what this tool is good at determining is who is relying on the third party kind of like surveillance economy, real time advertising, bidding ecosystem on their bottom line and companies that like have high values in those tests tend to be the ones that do that. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Okay. All right. Let's, let's, we'll get back into the, into the interview questions. Cause uh, I think we could just, we could just have fun with that all day. Right. Okay. So what were the challenges in building this? Oh, so many challenges. <laughs> yeah, I bet. I bet. Listen, I, I'm going to give you full credit for every problem you've solved. So please you tell me how hard something was and I'll go amazing job. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. Validation is important. <laughs> Fundamentally, the biggest challenge I think we faced was how do you build a system like this that's supposed to work on any website and always give accurate results. These aren't the only bad things that happen on the internet, but figuring out which ones we could definitively provide data for was was really tricky. So like all of these caveats, so like, for example, canvas fingerprinting, the test I mentioned earlier, that same technology is often used for um, bot detection and fraud prevention. So credit card companies like Stripe or payment services like Stripe, I should say, also use that same tech because they want to make sure that the people who are typing in the credit card are like a real person. So there's this like really delicate dance we had to do of like figuring out how to frame the tests and its limitations so that we're accurately representing what we find, but we're also not misrepresenting the reasons for why that could be there. That was really tricky. Just getting this thing up and running was really tricky because there was one day last year where we hit like the front page of Reddit and we were, and you know, you can imagine what that was like. Yep. And, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. and so we luckily do have a like a caching system where it caches for like 24 hours when a result is created. But when you go to a bunch of different websites, it's essentially spinning up a bunch of different browsers in the cloud. Yeah. So we actually like ha had to like build a system that could like scale from like 500 requests an hour to like 50 requests a minute. And that doing 50 requests a minute on a bunch of different websites means just spinning up 50 different browsers every minute for like six hours. And that was hard. Building yeah. a system that could do that was really challenging. And then figuring out how to translate all of this really granular data into something that is human digestible 
and engaging was also really <laughs> challenging because it was like cool who cares why should i care like yeah, and yeah. and that kind of stuff so there was all of these different challenges so sorry which of your own biases did you bring to building this tech <laughs> radical transparency is a solution for things <laughs> <laughs> amazing i love that's, it that's my bias <laughs> so what's been the response like what what cool findings have come out of this and what what like good feedback have you got i've had some really awesome emails from like journalists and actually some parents who just wanted to basically do what I wanted the steel to be used. So which is like ask the people like they email me saying, hey, you know, like my news org site has all these trackers. I don't think our readers know that. How can I talk to our IT department about this in a way that I can raise my concerns? And that for me is really why we built this tool is to build that bridge where we can have a nuanced conversation about these choices. So it's not just like the technologist saying we need it. Yeah. Like, you know, yep. like kind of just blanket, we need it, like just bring some new ones. And I think uh, and when, when that happens, it, it, it feels really validating. Yeah, that's that's super cool. That's awesome. All right. So um, I'll ask you the question that we, we like to ask everyone. Like, what are your favorite security and privacy tips? Like, what's your what's your go to when, you know, someone's like, how can I be safer online? What do you tell someone? So the first question I always ask is, who are you afraid of? Like, who are you trying to protect yourself against? Because I think that's a really important kind of thing to think about in like in in that conversation. But my my go to tips are genuinely use Signal and download one password. Like I was so <laughs> I was so thrilled when I was like coming on this podcast. I was like, I genuinely love this product, and I tell everyone <laughs> to use it. <laughs> so Aww. it felt really good. That's awesome. But fundamentally, again, I I don't really want people to have to care about this stuff. Like that's actually like my real motivation is like the, like the joke I always make at. At work is like, you know, if I want my mom to be concerned about something, I want her to be concerned about her role in climate change. Right. right? Yeah. I feel like this is something that we can actually figure out at a regulatory level. And one of the things that I feel like that comes up a lot with this idea of the consumer is responsible for their privacy is it's a, it's a similar sleight of hand that like plastics company do with recycling. Where like it's the consumer's responsibility to recycle the plastics. So, well, you are the people making the plastics. So why, if you just stop making the plastics, we won't have to deal with recycling the plastics. Yeah. And similarly, it's like if you just made privacy-focused software, we wouldn't have to be responsible and be blamed for having bad practices because we don't know any better and people are busy with their lives and they shouldn't have to do this this is something we should be you know we figured it out for medicines we figured it out for like food and like consumer products we get off the shelf so like for me a lot of this can be done through a combination of essentially literacy regulation and competition like i think those three tenets can really help us move in the right direction but what I don't like to do is kind of put the onus on the user. The thing I, I say a lot at work, actually, is that we should build technology that gives our readers a sense of agency over the relationship with technology, not apathy. And yeah. I think when you get into the blame game, we, we get to a sense of, like, I could never do any better. This is too hard. So I'm just going to accept everything bad that's happening. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really great stance. I love that. Okay. So wrapping it up, 
where can people go to find more about what you're up to and, and read some of your work and, and things of this nature? Sure. So the markup.org, that's where all of our stories are published. Uh, you know, we have Blacklight. I'm working on some new stuff, which I can't talk about yet, but hopefully it'll be out soon. Uh, you should also look at our series called Citizen Browser. That's where we've actually built a panel of people in the U.S. who we paid to run some software you develop that allows us to collect data that Facebook is showing them. So we basically have like a panel of like Facebook's algorithmic actions to monitor the ways in which they recommend groups and, you know, what kind of content they show. I think the people who listen to this might be interested in, in that too. But yeah, I think markup.org, there's lots of goodies for you guys there if you're interested in this kind of thing. Perfect. Awesome. Sorry, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you today. This is this was great. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So ask one password. Uh, Dan on Twitter has some comments on three word password. Great game. Actually, they've all been great. We will miss Rue getting beat by lower bot in Play Your Passwords Right, which I think is still nope. still pretty pretty fresh. <laughs> Fresnel was the only one that I got. By the way, you don't pronounce the S. <laughs> I even pronounced the S in reading this question out. So what is it? Fresnel. Fresnel. Fresnel being a word that we featured in the three word password a few episodes back. There we go. What is Fresnel? Uh, oh, it's the gla- It's the lens at the top of a lighthouse uh, with the ridges in it. There we go. Whoa. So if you have any, uh, you know, corrections to my pronunciation, <laughs> <laughs> then uh, please write into media on password.com. So I, th- That's good. I think it's time for, for three word password. Oh, I'm so excited. Oh, me too. Uh, this is the single worst way to share a password. Uh, we use cryptic clues to guess the three mystery words created by our memorable password generator. I had to this morning in creating this had to hit that generator button a good couple of times before i got something that was you know appropriate and understandable and difficult enough i hope you didn't go too difficult this time yeah they're, they're, they're all right okay here we go okay so word number one the coldest of all the biomes coming from a finnish word meaning treeless plain it is Noted for its frost-molded landscapes, extremely low temperatures, little precipitation, poor nutrients, and short growing seasons. It's also a lesser-known Marvel hero who can summon mosquitoes, hurl boulders from his body, increase his size by absorbing land mass. Oh, gosh. Okay. So you had... I thought I had it. And then I didn't. Kat, do you have a do you have a guess? No, I have to erase all the Marvel stuff because for me that's just a distraction. Yeah. So I'm trying with the the beginning of the clue. Um, <laughs> the coldest of all the biomes. I'm I'm thinking tundra, hmm. but is tundra a biome? That is correct. Oh, it is tundra. Yes, it is. Yeah. Oh, well done, Rue. All right. Next. There we go. All right. Second word. I think there is a one person audience for this one. Our first name and a valid Scrabble word, this English sugar merchant and philanthropist founded an art gallery in 1897. Now, a network of four art galleries, London, Liverpool and Cornwall, primarily funded by the UK Department for Digital, Culture, Media and Sport. Uh, It's also a common place name referred to in Georgia, Mississippi, Saskatchewan, Romania and Peru. (laughs) I I have the fear that... You said there's a one-person audience for this, and I'm worried that, that you're pointing at me because I'm British. I am definitely pointing at you for this. But I'm really appalled to say it. I don't know what it is straight away. Let's have a think. I mean, there aren't that many art galleries in London. Uh, should I just start naming art galleries I know? You probably should, yes. Saatchi, is that a valid Scrabble word? 
sugar merchant and philanthropist though. Um, National Portrait Gallery, the Tate Gallery, the... It's Tate. Tate's on the sugar yes, packet. It's Tate. Yes. Yeah. It's Tate, yeah. <laughs> Tate and Lyle was, uh, I don't know, Benjamin Lyle, I think it was. And someone Tate. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, founded, the, founded the Tate Gallery. Yeah, there we go. Interesting. Okay. All cool. right. Second word, Tate. Third word. Here we go. A natural process that gradually destroys materials, usually metals, by a chemical reaction to their environment. The most common being an electrical chemical oxidization of metal in reaction with an oxidant. Often, it's possible to chemically remove the byproducts of this process with products like navel jelly. I picked this just for navel jelly. Okay. The name is also given to the third studio album by Frontline Assembly, released in 1988. I don't know what navel jelly is. I don't but <laughs> I won't Google it. I can tell you that. Sounds like a party. Navel jelly. Can we can we move on from that? Can we stop saying navel jelly? That'd be great. Oh, it's Ugh. it's an uncomfortable word, isn't it? Ugh. Is it corrosion? I, I, I wrote oxidation before you, you actually used the word oxidation in the description, so it's not that. I feel like navel jelly must be petroleum jelly. Could be, yeah. Is it corrosion? Is it rust? It is corrosion. Nice. Good job, Kat. Oh, Tundra Tate corrosion. Nice. That's good. Navel jelly is a rust dissolver. Okay. Mm. I don't know why it's called navel jelly, but it's not nice, is it? Because they use it on ships in the Navy, maybe? Probably. Yeah. I mean, it it does sound like jelly that you put in your belly button, though, doesn't it? (laughs) Or that it comes out of your belly button. Like, it's a natural... Oh, that's even worse. That's That's what I was envisioning. Like, earwax, navel jelly, right? Like, oh. (laughs) Oh, no. All right. Well, I think that's all we've got time for this week. All right. right. Thanks, everyone. All right. Love you both. Love you both. We'll catch you later. Love you both. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.